Welcome to the Weekend Pulpit of Everyday Truth. We are currently in a series of messages studying the life of Elijah and considering the ups and downs of serving God. Hope you enjoy. God bless. 1 Kings chapter 17. I want to read a few, read a few verses for us uh, and finish out this chapter. What a great chapter it is. And this message today is the exclamation point on some things that God has been doing in the life of Elijah, some things that God is doing in our lives, and some things that we need to learn. I call this the exclamation point. Look at it, uh, 1 Kings chapter 17 and verse number 17, uh, where the Bible says these words, and it came to pass after these things that the son of the woman, remember the woman, the widow woman uh, who received the miracle? Well, the Bible says the son of this woman, the mistress of the house, fell sick. And his sickness was so sore that there was no breath left in him. Just a fancy way of saying that he had died. Verse number 18. And she said unto Elijah, What have I to do with thee, O thou man of God? Art thou come unto me to call my sin to remembrance and to slay my son? And he said unto her, Give me thy son. And he took him out of her bosom and carried him up into a loft where he abode, and laid him upon his own bed. And he cried unto the Lord. See that? Verse 20. And said, O Lord my God, hast thou also brought evil upon the widow with whom I sojourn by slaying her son? And he stretched himself upon the child three times and cried unto the Lord and said, O Lord my God, I pray thee, let this child's soul come into him again. And the Lord heard the voice of Elijah, and the soul of the child came into him again, and he revived. And Elijah took the child and brought him down out of the chamber into the house and delivered him unto his mother. And Elijah said, See, thy son liveth. And the woman said to Elijah, Now, now by this I know that thou art a man of God, and that the word of the Lord in thy mouth is truth. Lord, I pray that as we examine these verses more closely, that you would help us to see the truth packed in them. Lord, I pray that we would see it more as a message for us than it is a history lesson. I pray that we would see its value. I pray, God, that you would speak on the inside of each one of us, So many different issues in this room. So many needs. Lord, you know every single one of them. And I pray that you would meet needs. I pray that you would glorify your son, the Lord Jesus. I pray that you would inspire us to obey you in a greater way. Bless this message, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I want us to understand the the context of the story. Remember, the nation of Israel has done the unthinkable. They have imported a false religion into Israel. This has never happened. Now, there have been times of backsliding. There have been times when the people of God have have kind of uh, not worshiped God like he deserves, but never have they built temples to false gods in Israel. Now, think about it. God's plan for Israel is that they would reach the world. That's God's plan. 
It wasn't that God chose Israel like, I love you, but I don't love anyone else. That's not the way God did it. No, God said, I'm going to set my love upon you. I'm going to work with you. I'm going to give my word to you so that through you, you might reach the world. That's the way God does it. God loved Israel so that through Israel, he would love the rest of the world. But Israel is not doing her job. Israel is not obeying God. Israel is not following God. And to add insult to injury, Israel has imported the false god Baal into her country. Now, how bad is that? Not only has she imported the false god Baal into the country, but they've actually erected a temple to Baal. So now the state religion includes worshiping God, but also worshiping Baal. So the chapter begins with Elijah. Elijah just kind of shows up, a, no, a nobody from nowhere just kind of shows up one day in the palace and says to Ahab, Ahab, uh, it's not going to rain until I say so. Now, obviously, uh, it wasn't Elijah's word that he was declaring. It was God's word because God had already told the nation that if you forget about me, if you worship false gods, I'm going to make the rain stop so that you'll remember me. And Elijah said, okay, the rain's going to stop. Elijah is declaring the, the word of God. And the rest of the chapter really is the way that God is privately taking care of Elijah. Remember what God said? Elijah, now leave here, leave the palace, and go to this little brook by the Jordan River, the brook Kareth, and there I have commanded the ravens to feed you. Makes no sense. Ravens don't feed anybody. But God sometimes does some unusual things in some unusual ways to show that he is our unusual God. And that's what he did. And there for a time, Elijah was fed by the ravens. There for a time, he was nourished by that brook until the brook dried up. And then God again came to Elijah and said, Elijah, I want you to leave here and go to Zarephath, go to Sidon. That's where Baal was from, by the way. That's where Jezebel was from. Go to Sidon, and there I have commanded a widow woman to feed you. That seems equally as uh, illogical. I mean, ravens don't feed people, and widows don't feed people. We're supposed to take care of widows, not widows take care of us. And yet God said, I'm going to do things reverse. So Elijah, just obey me. And he does. Elijah goes all the way up to Sidon. He goes to a place called Zarephath along the coast. And there he meets the widow woman. And you know the story. You know how that God miraculously blessed. You know how that God gave her that barrel of meal and that cruise of oil. And it's not running out. God is supplying the need day by day, week by week. Great things are happening. And you would think that that would be the end of the story. But it's not the end of the story. Because the Bible says that this same widow woman that had this great miracle performed for her so that she and her son could continue to live and support Elijah, now this widow woman suffers the loss of her son. Well, you talk about a blow. You talk about a sad reality, and that's it. What is God doing? Why is God allowing? What lesson is still unlearned that God is teaching both his prophet and this woman and ultimately you and me? What is the exclamation point on this chapter? I think it might be interesting for you to know that Baal, the false god Baal, was the god of fertility. And when people wanted the rain to come and when people wanted their wife to have a baby and when people wanted the crops to grow, uh, they would pray to Baal, uh, the god of fertility. Baal brings life. That was the false conception of the Canaanites. That was the false conception of the Zidonians. And that was now the false conception of the Israelites. That Baal is good. Baal brings life. 
But the other thing that uh, they worshiped back in those days was the god Mot, M-O-T. And the god Mot was the god of death. And Baal and Mot were always fighting each other. That was the conception, Baal and Mot. And Baal brought life and Mot brought death. And sometimes Baal was winning and sometimes Mot was winning. And sometimes Baal was the one that brought that agricultural success. But boy, when the agriculture died, then Mot was the one that was winning. And people died, Mot was winning. So what, what would the people of Israel be thinking now? They might be thinking, wow, the rain's not coming. Wow, we're worshiping Baal and the crops aren't growing. But things are getting bad. Maybe Baal is losing right now. Maybe Mott is winning right now. But either way, they weren't thinking about God. And so what does God do? God brings himself into the picture. In every one of these illustrations, God brings himself into the picture that I am the God of life and I am the God that controls death. And we're going to find that right here in our passage. I am the God of life. That's why you'll see the reiteration of the little statement in 1 Kings chapter 7, 17, uh, the, the God that liveth, uh, uh, I, the, my, the God uh, that liveth. I think it says it in 1 Kings chapter 17 and verse, uh, uh, look at verse number 11, uh, verse number 12, as the Lord thy God liveth. And we see that throughout the passage, God lives, God lives. What's God showing himself strong uh, here? He's saying, I am the God that lives and I am the God that controls death. It's an exclamation point. You know, I find another thing very interesting about this passage. Everything that's happening in 1 Kings chapter 17 is happening privately. Did you, did you ever think about that? Everything that's happening in 1 Kings 17 is happening privately. Uh, Elijah is by a brook in the middle of nowhere by himself, and God cares for him. Elijah is in a widow's house by himself. He lives in a little room on the roof by himself, and God is doing miraculous things. And sometimes God does his best work in our life when we're all by ourselves. Sometimes God shows himself the strongest when we're all, all by ourselves. I find it interesting that when Jesus referenced the ministry of Elijah, he didn't talk about fire coming down from heaven. Now, that's what you would talk about. That's what I would talk about. I mean, that's the great and notable miracle in Elijah's ministry. Boy, he stood up to the prophets of Baal. He called down fire from heaven. It was Elijah versus the whole crowd. I mean, what a story. But when Jesus referenced Elijah's ministry, he talked about this story. When Jesus referenced Elijah's ministry, he talked about this story, when it was just Elijah and this woman and her son. And can I just say this? When Jesus, uh, when, when Jesus references your story, he references you and him. Your private story. He loves you. He's concerned about your situation. He's concerned about your trouble. He's concerned about your reality. And that that's the God we serve. We wouldn't know about these stories unless Elijah had told us about them. And by the way, we wouldn't know about your story unless you'd speak up and glorify God about the private things he does in your life. That's a separate message that was free. Okay, now, 1 Kings chapter 17, look at verse number 17. And consider with me a, a few thoughts in this message I'll entitle the exclamation point. Look at verse number 17. Well, the Bible says, and it came to pass after these things. So we'll talk about this woman's sad reality. There's the very sad thing that took place in her life that she didn't want to be true. Uh, she wished it never happened. She would wish it were a bad dream, but uh, sadly, it was the reality of her life. And the, the, the story begins in verse 17 by saying, it came to pass after these things. Well, after what things? 
Well, remember the message last week? The message last week, we talked about the great things that happened. The message last week, we talked about the, the barrel of meal that would never go out. We talked about the cruise of oil that would never run dry. We talked about how God miraculously, uh, 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 miraculously met the need of this widow day after day after day. And those are good times. I mean, those are peaceful. Those are happy times. Those are peaceful times. And yet the Bible says, after these things. You know, that's a sad reality in all of our lives. And that is we live in a world of pain. We live in a world of vicissitudes and things are constantly changing. And the Bible says the rain falls on the just and the unjust. And man is born unto trouble, Job said, as the sparks fly upward. And you might be in a season in your life right now where everything is hunky-dory. You might be in a season in your life right now where, boy, your health is good and the bills are paid and all your relationships are good and people like you and uh, you're doing well uh, at the job and uh, you, you might get a raise. And boy, those are good times, aren't they? But those aren't times that last. Every single life goes through the valley. Every single person goes through pain. And there are up times and there are down times. And the Bible says here in 1 Kings chapter 17 that after these things, after the peaceful time. You say, now, uh, Pastor Skelly, why would you make that a big deal in this message? I make that a big deal because sometimes, if we're not careful, we look at bad times always like, boy, there's some nefarious reason for it. We look at bad times in our life like, well, I must have done something wrong. We look at bad times like, boy, God must be judging me. But understand that that's life. Life, when it comes to the circumstances of our life, is always a roller coaster. So when the Bible talks about this woman's sad reality, I see, first of all, there was a peaceful time. But notice with me, number two this morning, not only was there a peaceful time in this sad reality, there was a painful time. And that's really what the story is all about. Watch what it says in verse number 17. So it came to pass after these things that the son of the woman, the mistress of the house, fell sick. And his sickness was so sore that there was no breath left in him. Well, this tells me a lot about this woman. Just this one verse tells me a lot about this woman. First of all, the Bible calls her the mistress of the house. Now, not mistress in some kind of a, uh, a sordid way, not mistress in some kind of a negative way. The word mistress uh, it translates the Hebrew word be'ala. It comes from the word be'al. The same word, be'ala, means ruler, means the one in charge. It's not a negative word in this sense. It just means that this woman was the head of her house. This means that she owned the house. It means that she ran the affairs of the house. Sometimes we get the idea that when Elijah showed up at the widow's house, she was this poor widow that only had two sticks to rub together. No, no, she was a homeowner. This widow had some means. She had some resources, but her resources couldn't help her in this situation. She had some authority, but her authority couldn't help her in this situation. She was the mistress of the house. But then the Bible teaches that her son fell sick, and her son was the son that she held in her bosom. And the implication might be that she was still nursing her son. Uh, back in Bible days, they would nurse children, uh, sometimes till age three, four years of age. How many ladies are glad you don't live in, okay, anyway. Uh, uh, so he could have been three, four years of age, but he was, he was uh, obviously a younger child, a younger child, because she was holding him in her bosom. Well, what does that tell me about the woman? What does that tell me about this woman? That tells me that she's a younger woman. Now, she's not an old woman. Sometimes we picture, well, widow, that means old. 
And many times it does because your husband lived a long life and uh, typically a husband precedes his wife in death. And so a widow typically is an older woman, but not in this case. She's a young woman. Not only is she a young woman, she's a young woman with a young child. And not only is she a young woman with a young child, she's a young woman with her only child. And she's a young woman with her only child without extended family because she's living by herself, which would be very, very uncommon. So a young woman with a young child living by herself and having to take care of somebody who lives on the roof. That's a pretty dire situation. And now she's lost her only son. That is a painful situation. Now, I can't think of a sorrow any greater than that. I cannot think of sorrow any greater than losing one's own child. Can you? I cannot think of a sorrow any greater than losing one's only. I remember talking to my grandma when my dad died. My dad died at age 56. I'll be 56 in two weeks. That's how old my dad was when he died. When my dad died, I remember, you know, we, we went through that grief process. But nobody grieved more than my grandma, my dad's mom. And she said over and over again, sons aren't supposed to precede mothers in death. Sons aren't supposed to precede mothers in death. She said over and over again. Can you imagine this little boy? Can you imagine this boy that you thought you were going to lose one time? You were making his last meal. You were starving to death. And all of a sudden, at the last minute, the prophet of God shows up from nowhere. And now a miracle has taken place. And now you've eaten every day, uh, day by day and week by week. And God's been good and God's supplied. There's been a peaceful time. But one day, you sense a little bit of a cough and something's not right. And boy, the fever uh, spikes. And within a day or two, this healthy child is on the brink of death. And then there in your arms, he takes his last breath. Every parent that has a young child, you can't even imagine that. Every grandparent that has a young grandchild, you can't even imagine that. That this woman is holding this child, and this child... (gasps) And then she holds his lifeless body. You can't imagine that kind of pain. It was her sad reality. There was a peaceful time. There was a painful time, which led to a perplexing time. Oh, watch her. Watch what she says. What would you say? Look at verse number 19. This demonstrates how perplexed she is. Verse number 18, rather. And she said unto Elijah, well, what have I to do? What have I to do with thee, O thou man of God? She's being derisive. She's being sarcastic. Now, what have I done wrong? What did I do to deserve this? What have I to do with thee, O thou man of God? Art thou come unto me to call my sin to remembrance and to slay my son? Is that why you showed up? Is that why you're here? Is this some kind of a cruel joke? We were living our life. I didn't ask for you to come. Uh, You showed up, but we were going to die. And and, uh, then we got this reprieve, and and, uh, my son is healthy. We have this food. Oh, for what? For what? So that he can die? Is that why you came? Is this kind of, some kind of a sick joke? She's perplexed. You know, when we go through painful times in our life, we say, we say things that we shouldn't say. We go through sad times in our lives. Sometimes we, we assign blame in places that they should not go. 
Sometimes the pressures of our life squeeze us in such a way that some of the the wrong thinking and the wrong theology of our heart that squeezes its way out shows up in what we say. That's what's happening here. Because this woman really has a wrong view about everything. Number one, she has a, a wrong view about Elijah. Is that why you showed up, huh? That's why you showed up, right? To take from me. Well, is that why Elijah showed up? No. No, Elijah didn't show up to take from her. Elijah showed up, and Elijah saved her life. God used Elijah to save her and her son's life. Elijah wasn't a negative. Elijah was a positive. Sometimes we, we look at uh, the person that represents God or the person that represents the church or uh, people. They're, they're the enemy. No, they're not the enemy. They're trying to help. They're, they're, they're part of the blessing here. But, but pain has caused her perspective to be distorted. A wrong view about Elijah. She had a wrong view about God. Hey, is that what's happening, man of God? Is that what's happening here, that, that God sent you to do his dirty work? Is that what happened here? God doesn't care for me. God's been waiting to zap me. God's been waiting to get me. God's been biding his time until uh, my, I, I thought everything was good, and then did God just pulls the rug out from underneath me? Is that what's happening? She's asking the question. She's asking the question. She's making accusation in her question, isn't she? A wrong view of Elijah, a wrong view of God, a wrong view of sin. I know what's happening here. My sin caught up with me. Is that what happened here? You, God remembered my sin. Uh, God remembered uh, what I've done wrong, and he's been waiting, he's been waiting, and I deserve this, and he's zapping me. That's what's happening. Boy, our, our mind can do weird things in pain, can it? Weird things. Maybe the sin she was thinking about was, hey, God commanded me to take care of this, uh, th this prophet. Remember what God told Elijah? Hey, I want you to go from uh, Kareth up to Zarephath because I have commanded a widow woman there. I've commanded a widow woman there to care for you. So God, in some way, shape, or form, had communicated with this widow. God, in some way, shape, or form, had told her, I want you to care for my prophet. She knew that. And when the prophet showed up and said, hey, get me some water, she was more than willing to get the water. Get me some food, too. She said, I don't have enough food. I don't have food. I've got food, but it's only enough for me and for my son. Maybe that's what she's thinking about here. Maybe she's thinking, God told me to care for him, and my initial reaction to him was, I don't have enough. I don't have enough. Maybe she's feeling guilty. You know, guilt does weird things in our life. We carry it. Don't let it go. And it becomes a lens through which we see every negative circumstance in life. Okay, I got in traffic. I must have done something wrong, you know. I stubbed, I stubbed my toe, I, I, must have got, I must have done something wrong. That's a horrible way to live. It's a horrible, horrible way to live. And she's living that way. A wrong view of Elijah, a wrong view of God, a wrong view of sin. A sad reality is the reality of this woman's life. Not only do I see, though, a sad reality. Watch this. Secondly, I see a, a spiritual response. How did Elijah respond to this woman's accusatory tone? How did Elijah respond to a woman that was calling into question the very God whom Elijah represented? Uh, how does Elijah respond to a woman that's called into question his motives? Why are you here, Elijah? Are you here to get me? Is that why you're here? No, I think the way I'd respond is, what in the world are you talking about, okay? Did you eat today? Did you eat yesterday? You ought to be glad I'm here. You ought to thank God for me. You ought to repent. 
By the way, sorry about your son, right? That's my compassionate heart. But watch how Elijah responds. I love it. It's a spiritual response. Verse number 19. And he said unto her, give me thy son. He comes in. She pours her heart out. Why did God do this to me? Why are you here? Why, why, what have I done wrong? You know what, Elijah? Shh. Come on. Come on. Give, give him to me. And she hands over this lifeless body, this lifeless body, this limp, cold, lifeless body. Elijah takes him. Do you see that? Look, look at verse number 19. He took him out of her bosom, carried him up into a loft where he abode. I think for propriety's sake, he didn't live in the house with this woman. That would have been improper. He lived on the roof, separate apartment, a loft where he abode, and he laid him upon his own bed. What was the spiritual response? I think, first of all, the spiritual response was he got, he got to a private place. He got to a private place. There's many things Elijah could have said. There's many things Elijah could have done. But Elijah realized, you know, I, I, need, to, I, need, to, I need to take this inexplicable situation. And that's what it was. And what you're going to find in a moment is Elijah didn't have any more answers. Elijah didn't have any more answers than the woman did. Sometimes people think, well, you know, I'm just going to go pastor. He has all the answers. No, he doesn't. No, he doesn't. When I was a young pastor, I would always feel the pressure of when people ask me something, I've got to defend God. I've got to defend God. Okay, well, you know, maybe God's doing this. Maybe God's doing that. You know what, I learned, know what I've learned over the years? I don't know. You're asking me why God's doing something? I don't know. I don't know. I can maybe give you some suggestions. I can tell you some big rock things, but I don't know in your specific situation why it happened. I don't know. And so Elijah, he's confused. He's as confused as this woman is, but he doesn't betray that confusion. Unlike the woman, he doesn't take his questions, he doesn't make his questions into accusations. He didn't go to somebody else and say, why would God do this? I can't believe God would do it. And what, what do you think you're doing anyway? He didn't do that. He takes those same questions and instead of sharing them in an accusatory tone with others, he takes those questions and brings them to God. Can I just say this? God is not afraid of your questions. He invites them. Have you ever read the Psalms? You read the Psalms and you're like, woo. Like, you shouldn't talk to God like that. Have you ever done that? You read David. David's like, God, why are you, are you even out there? God, you don't love me. It's like, David, shh, don't say that to God. Well, here, here I'm going to let you in on a secret. God already knew. Because God's got that whole omniscience thing going on. No, it's not wrong to pour out your complaint. Just don't pour it out on Facebook. You know, passive aggressively. And then a million people like it, and you're like, oh, I feel so much better now for like five minutes. Then you're like, oh, that felt good. Let me put another big problem on Facebook. And you don't get as many likes, and now you feel bad about the problem and feel bad about the people don't care anymore. No, take that thing to God. Take that thing to God. So what does Elijah do? 
Elijah goes to a private place. But not only does he go to a private place, he prays a perplexing prayer. Look, look at verse number 20. Watch what Elijah says. And he cried unto the Lord and said, O Lord my God, hast thou also brought evil? Evil would mean a negative situation, not that God does evil. That's not the meaning of the word here. God, God, have you brought evil upon the widow with whom I sojourn by slaying her son? God, why? In essence, Elijah is asking the same question that she asked. But the big difference here is Elijah is not making a question mark, an exclamation point of of accusation. The woman made her question an accusation. But Elijah uh, sincerely goes to God and says, says, God, am I missing something here? Because I'm pretty sure that this woman's been good to me. Uh, She's obeyed. I've been sojourning with her. Uh, Are you doing something evil to her? God, are you judging her? I mean, why is this going on? What's interesting is both the woman and Elijah knew that death was in the power of God, not in the power of Mott. Death was in the power of God, not in the power of Baal. So even in their pain, there's a little bit of faith, isn't there? So there's a private place. There's a perplexing prayer. God's not afraid of your perplexing prayers. He's not afraid of why. His own son on the cross said, why hast thou forsaken me? It's not wrong to ask why. There was a private place. There was a perplexing prayer. But then watch this. There was a passionate prayer. Verse number 20. That, that question mark in verse number 19, that verse, that the question mark rather in verse number 20 became a prayer of faith in verse number 21. Well, the Bible says he stretched himself upon the child three times. Say, why did he do that? I don't know. He cried unto the Lord and said, oh, Lord, my God, I pray thee, let this child's soul come into him again. He knew he was dead. He knew he wasn't breathing. This wasn't just some kind of a mouth-to-mouth resuscitation thing. This wasn't some kind of a hypothermia, body-to-body, get the heat back in thing. Uh, This child was dead. And Elijah was praying that this child would be resurrected. Wow, what a prayer. Understand this. Nobody in recorded history up until that moment had ever resurrected from the dead. Nobody. Nobody. 3,200 years of human history up until that moment. Nobody had ever, this miracle had never happened. Matter of fact, there were other instances where it's very clear that when children die, they don't come back. Remember what David said? David prayed for his sick child, uh, and when his child died, he stopped praying. Why? He's with God. I cannot, I cannot, he cannot come to me. He can't come to me. I can go to him, that's it. I can't. So, I mean, Elijah didn't have any precedent here. And yet he prayed anyway. What kind of prayer was this passionate prayer? I think, first of all, it was a prayer of faith and confidence. That's what faith is, by the way, confidence. Not, not, not faith as in I'm, I'm a confident person. I'm just a positive person, so I just pray positively because I'm a positive. It's all going to work out. That's not faith. Faith must have an object. No, Elijah had confidence in God. Why? Because he had seen God work over and over again. He prayed that it wouldn't rain. didn't rain. Oh, God, you're powerful. You have power over nature. He went to a brook and ravens came in with Happy Meals, right? You say, I thought, he, I thought ravens fed with like grimy food. Yeah, Happy Meals. Okay, so anyway, ravens, widows fed. Food didn't run out. 
God's sovereign over nature. God's sovereign over the animal kingdom. God's sovereign over agriculture. God, wow. So I have confidence in God. It's a prayer of faith. But not only was it a prayer of faith and confidence, it was a prayer of humility. He said to God, I pray thee. That, that's a, uh, the, the word that translates that in Hebrew is a word of humility. It's what he said to the woman. Hey, fetch, I pray thee, please. We would say today, please, I pray thee. Fetch, I pray thee, a little water. Uh, bring me a morsel of bread, I pray thee. God, I pray thee. He wasn't demanding of God. God has his purposes. I, I don't know what God, why God did. And I, I just know what God did. God, please, please. It's a prayer of confidence. It's a prayer of humility. I see the stretching of his body on the body of the boy was a sign of humility. Say, how so? Well, back in Bible days, for a Jewish man to touch a dead body was to become unclean. The Bible expressly forbade that. Unless you were involved in the funeral process, you weren't to touch a dead body. And yet, what did Elijah do? He touched that dead body. Why? Because the God that can feed with unclean birds sometimes does things in reverse. And, and so I'm going to, uh, God, I'm showing you. Uh, I have no inhibition here. I'm going to humble myself in every way. And I'll do that, which I've never done before. God, because, Lord, hear me. It's humility. Faith and humility. Audacity. As I said, no one had ever prayed this prayer before. This was totally unprecedented. And yet Elijah was praying to God. Remember what the Bible says about him? He prayed earnestly. The effectual, fervent prayer of a righteous man availeth much. That was the commentary of which Elijah was the illustration in James chapter 5. The effectual, fervent prayer of a righteous man availeth much. Oh God, I need you. Oh God, I trust you. Oh God. Wow, what a prayer. What a prayer this was from Elijah to God. Does God hear all prayers? No. No, he doesn't. God does not hear all prayers. Matter of fact, the Bible says, if I regard iniquity in my heart, the Lord will not hear me. The Bible says the Lord's hand is not shortened that it cannot save. Neither is his ear heavy that it cannot hear. But your iniquities have separated between you and your God and your sins have hid his face from you that he will not hear. It's not that God can't hear, but God chooses not to hear us when we choose not to hear him. So Elijah prayed a prayer and said, God, I'm all in. I want you and your will. Oh, God. God heard that prayer. Well, what an example of prayer and faith. I see a sad reality in verses 17 and 18. I see a spiritual response. Verses 19 through 21. But notice with me lastly this morning what I'll call a supernatural result. Look at verse number 21. A supernatural result. The Bible says in verse 22, and the Lord heard. I love that. The Lord heard. The Lord heard. The Lord heard the voice of Elijah. Does God hear me? Yes. Does God care? Yes, I know he cares. His heart is touched with my grief. The Lord heard the voice of Elijah. The soul of the child came into him again. He revived. Elijah took the child. He brought him down out of the chamber into the house. Delivered him into his mother. Elijah said, see, 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 thy son liveth. What was the supernatural result? I think, first of all, there was a powerful provision. That's what God's been doing all chapter long. God provides food with ravens. God provides food out of nothing. 
God provides life out of death. It's a powerful provision. But not only is it a powerful provision, I I see that this prayer had a a, a primary purpose. You say, what's the primary purpose of this prayer? Is, Is this passage in the Bible, listen, is this passage prescriptive? You know what I mean by that? In other words, does God tell us these stories to tell us, hey, if, if, if you have a loved one that dies, just pray. If you have enough faith, your, your loved one's going to come back to life. Is that what God's teaching us? No, of course not. So, so then why would God do it for Elijah and not do it in my situation? Remember the context. The context of the passage is for the first time ever, the nation of Israel has imported a false god. The nation of Israel has a job, and its job is to reflect the glory of God to a world that doesn't know God. They have an evangelistic purpose. But now all of that has been mitigated by the fact that they have uh, worshipped Baal. So this is a time when God is showing that he is more powerful than Baal. Uh, You've made the wrong choice, my people. This is a huge deal. This is an exclamation point. The primary purpose of this miracle is not the healing of a son back to back to life, this son ended up dying. This wasn't, he died one day. This wasn't a matter of of some special thing happening to the son per se. No, the miracle here was God manifesting his power and his glory. Can I just say that that's always the purpose in life. That's the purpose in your situation. You might not be dealing with a dying child, but you're dealing with something. You might not have a child that died in your arms, but you've had something die. You've had something that's, uh, that's bothering you. You had something that you can't explain. You've had something that you want to get to a private place and talk to God about. And what's the primary purpose for God working in any situation? It's for him to show himself strong. What, what we need to do is reflect God's glory. And the New Testament believer does that in life and in death. Did you know that? And Paul said uh, in, uh, to the Philippians, he said, uh, so now also that Christ might be magnified, made bigger, made bigger, that Christ might be magnified in my life, whether it be my life or my death. For to me to live is Christ, to die is gain. So as believers, we understand that we live forever. And if God wants to glorify himself in healing Great. If God wants to glorify himself in the way that I die so I can show people what it means to have faith in death, then so be it. Because the primary purpose is God's glory. That's the point. So what do we see? We see a supernatural result, powerful provision. We see a primary purpose. But then lastly, we see what I'll call personal profit. There is a, a real life component to this story. There is a real mom who has a real son who's really happy. And watch what happens in verse number 24. And the woman said to Elijah, see that? What, how would you respond to this, mom? How would you respond to this three-year-old boy giving back to you? And he's alive. He's breathing. Moments ago, you held his lifeless body. See, he's alive. Watch her response in verse 24. Now, now by this, this, this miracle, this, this, holding this child. Now, she's seen some great things. She's seen the fact that it doesn't rain. That was God's word. She's seen the fact that her barrel of meal doesn't go out. That, that's God's word. She sees the fact that the cruise of oil never runs dry. That's God's word. But she's seen some miracles, and none of those miracles have convinced her. 
None of those miracles have, have demonstrated to her that God is the God. But now she says, now by this, by this I know that thou art a man of God and that the word of the Lord in thy mouth is truth. So what, those things she accused? She accused Elijah of his motives. What are you doing to me? She accused God of his motives. What's he doing to me? Now, humbly, she says, now I get it. God wasn't doing something to me. He was doing something for me. God wasn't punishing me and zapping me. God was about to demonstrate his power and his presence in my life in ways I never thought imaginable. And almost like it was exceeding abundantly above all that she would even ask or think. That's what God was doing. Wow. Personal prophet. Let me just say this. The best way, don't miss this statement. The best way by which we are profited in any given situation is when that situation increases our faith in the word of God. The best way that you are profited in any, whether you're healed or not healed, whether you're helped or not helped, the best way that you are profited in any given situation is when your faith is increased to trust God more. That's it. Why? Because the only thing that matters to God about you, I should say the main thing that matters to God about you, is your faith. Without that, you can't live. Because the just shall live by his faith. Without that, you can't please God. Because without faith, it's impossible to please God. And so when God uses circumstances to increase your faith, that's the best thing that can happen to you. Oh, for grace to trust him more. Now, how does any of this point to Jesus? Because every story in the Bible points to Jesus. So how does any of this point to Jesus? Well, I already mentioned one time, Jesus talked about this story. When he said to his townspeople, you don't have faith. So he used the story and he talked about faith, Luke chapter four. Oh, by the way, Jesus actually went to Sinai. You say, what? Yeah, he did. One time. Jesus one time left Israel in his public ministry. You know where he went? Here. Sidon. And in Sidon, guess who he met? A parent. A widow. And guess what she had? A child who needed desperate help. And guess what he did? Helped her. Wow. Oh, do you know that three times in Jesus' ministry, he healed, raised somebody from the dead? Only three times. Two times it was a child. Jairus' daughter, she was 12. The widow's son at Nain, we don't know how old he was, but it was a widow's son. How ironic. And the very last time Jesus raised somebody from the dead, it was a brother. Probably the only breadwinner for two sisters, Mary and Martha. Here's what they both said, both of them. Jesus, if you had been here, my brother wouldn't have died. Both of them said, Jesus, where were you? And there is the answer to our question. Because Jesus said this, do you believe in the resurrection? Oh yeah, we do. One day, one day. Oh no, no, no. I, I am the resurrection and the life. He that believeth in me, though he were dead, yet shall he live. And whosoever liveth and believeth in me shall never die. 
then he looked at Martha and said, do you believe that? And he looks at you today. He says, no, it's, it's not about you coming back to life after a sickness. It's not about you having that big colossal bill paid that you feel is going to change your life. It's, no, God is concerned about your faith and your eternity. And Jesus came to take your place on a cross. And Jesus looks at you today and says, do you believe that I am the answer to not only your physical life, but to your eternal life? Do you believe me? Will you believe me? That's the question that this story points to. 